Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Hello and welcome once again to another Trademark podcast. I'm joined again by comrades John Barry, Professor John Barry of QUB and Stuart McGill, um, who was here last year with us talking all things modern monetary theory. We got through a lot last week. I hope you listened to it. If you didn't listen to it, and you listen to it again, because there's quite a lot of stuff in there, a lot of counterintuitive understandings, a little bit of technical stuff too. And we're back today to, to continue that conversation, because we didn't get halfway through it, lads, really. We finished, if you recall, well, maybe before I start on, 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 on the next stage, so maybe confirm some of the things we learned last week for people. One of the things MMT gives us, give me one thing each, lads. I'll give you one thing for me. My thing is government spend first, then they tax back. It's not the other way around, and that's an important understanding. John, what's one of the things you can help our listeners with? One it is the, the materialist analysis of the economy, that the only constraints we should be concerned about from a political economy point of view is not the finances or the government debt. It's actually the physical assets, labor, and resources we have in the economy. They are the only real constraints and the only issues we should really be concerned about from a political economy point of view. Stuart, over to you. One thing. Prism through which to see some of the bullshit we are fed about the deficit and the debt. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best one. Stuart wins the competition. Is he? he gets a free pint. The, uh, it's so important, though. To, uh, There's no such thing as a free pint. <laughs> well, that's 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 it. Very true. Everything I do is transactional, mate. No problem. <laughs> the uh, it's important, otherwise, isn't to remember these things because so many of these narratives we suggested last week. Are embedded in public understandings of how finances work and when you're doing political education which is what we do for a living you spend most of your time deconstructing these narratives before you can build any alternative understandings of how the world might work and how it might look at so deconstructing stuff's really hard if you go into a pub and there's a bloke sitting in the corner with no arse in his trousers and say what's wrong with the economy he'll tell you well there's no money mate we can't afford it because he'll have and why wouldn't he? everyone does including people involved in economics and politics i remember liam burn remember the new labor I think he was Chief Secretary for the Treasury under Gordon Brown. He left a note, didn't he, for the Dems? There's no money. <laughs> There's no money, please. Now, I, I'm convinced he probably fucking believed that. He was probably that thick that he didn't know that actually that's not how the government finances worked. Um, but those those dominant discourses that is part of this, the reason for these podcasts, this discussion, is to try and help people understand that's not how things Stefan, I'll just come in there just to illustrate um, my... Now, this is prior to my Damascan moment of understanding MMT and how, as Stuart said, it reveals part of, that of the bullshit. About 25 years ago, I was, I was living in Stoke-on-Trent, working at Keele University, and I got really interested in uh, local currencies, which were popping up all over the UK and elsewhere. It's interesting that I look back historically, often um, working class people, but not uh, exclusively, at times of economic recession, people start to invent their own currencies because they realize, well, if I haven't got enough of sterling or, or euros, there's still things I can I can trade and, and get in my local community. So anyway, I was managing one of these, uh, they were called LET schemes, L-E-T-S, Local Economic Trading Systems. And in fact, I, I wrote a book about it um, as a result of my experience in the 90s. But I remember um, trying to get people to understand when you join these schemes, 
nothing was, I was the banker effectively, the, the person coordinating all the transactions and fucking nothing was happening for, for, so we had 30 people signed up and nobody was trading. And what, what it turned out was, and it's this kind of fetishization, moralization of debt, the issue we're talking about last week with David Graeber, is that people didn't want to get into debt as they call it. So, in other words, this scheme existed by, there was no, actually, you, you had no, of, no currency, and we called ours the pot in Stoke-on-Trent, it was the potteries there, so, we, so our local currency was the pot. And you, people were afraid to start um, you know, spending it because they said that means getting into debt. And we had to have a meeting whereby I explained, listen, you've got to pay it forward here. You're going into commitment. You know, you, to get the whole scheme moving, you've got to basically say, I want a haircut. Or I, I want to buy some leaks off you. And it's just amazing how uh, this idea of death, this moralized notion can prevent people from even in that modest little small way from getting the whole scheme working. And just reflecting on the MMT that I now know. To me, that's what I was kind of experiencing back then is the power of this narrative of debt, but also that um, currency, whether it's a local currency like the one I'm talking about or a national currency like sterling or the euro, it's a claim on resources. And it's that fetishization of money, how it gets in the way of understanding what we need as human beings are things and that actually uh, money can get in the way in terms of getting into problems around debt. Sorry, that's a bit of a, a long-winded no, explanation. No, you're right. We, we, are, we will do a podcast based around David Graeber's work. Um, <laughs> if you haven't read it, people, it's one of them books you should really have in the library. It's five thousand, the first 5,000 years of debt by David Graeber. I mean, an excellent book, real mighty tone of work. And it, and it explains all of those things you're talking about, um, John, about that concept of debt having such a controlling aspect over human lives. Uh, even in the, he goes into the use of debt in colonialism and imperialism as well. I mean, some of the, many of the colonial countries in Africa and, and the Caribbean are still paying off the debt that they had to pay back for being invaded in the first place. I mean, they paid for their own fucking invasion and their own oppression. But we'll move back into a, our MMT stuff, um, and it's and it's relative, we're going to talk about debt as well uh, and money creation because now I want to talk about quantitative easing because back in 2011. My interest in finance capital came with the crash, of course, and understanding how the crash was brought about, what a derivative was, and what a credit default obligation was, and all those other terms that we used to describe was really just extended chains of indebtedness being gambled around the globe. But then this QE thing happened as a response to the crash. Um, you know, so when privatized banks or when private banks always stopped lending to each other, that was our credit crunch. And so the state steps in to create new money and I'm even thinking, oh, well, I didn't know the state creating money. I thought that was banks that did that. And it was this kind of realization of what's this all about? Um but it's during these kind of crises, particularly the last crash and particularly this pandemic, that the money creating powers of the state actually become revealed to people. And you can see them being drip fed into the national press sometimes. And I've got about 20 cuttings from the Financial Times in the last four months when somehow all of this is kind of being leaked out. But now they're starting to close that debate down again because they've been caught out somehow. People are learning about how government finances work. Um, and that first one was interesting. So I'll go to you first, Stuart. QE, quantitative easing. What did it tell us if you were like I was like an amateur trying to pick up on these things? What did it tell us about how the state functions work? What was quantitative easing, QE? And there's more than one kind of it. I know that. So we'll get on to that in a minute. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, QE basically should tell us that uh, there is a magic money tree whenever the state deems it a wise thing to do. Uh, and uh, yeah, very briefly, the whole point of QE was to basically, in this country, they bought mostly gilt-edged securities. So the prices of gilt, gilt goes up. 
there's a fixed level of interest associated with those gilts, so the yield goes down, therefore it makes more productive investment possible in the economy. People think, well, let's not just invest in gilts, there's other stuff out there. So it revives the so-called animal spirits, according to Keynes. Uh, it also helps, the one, <laughs> don't want to get too technical, it's interesting at the time, some people were very sceptical about whether it would make banks lend more money and give banks the ability to lend more money. Well, that was, that was what it was designed to do, wasn't it? Well, yeah, again, it was, but according to some people, but it didn't work out that way. And the Bank of England at the time were dubious about what they called the banking channel, because what the I think the first bits of QE were uh, geared at buying securities from the non-banking sector. So the non-banking sector put those deposits they made from the securities sales into the banks, but they tended to be treated quite flighty because they're in with the banks for a while. It increased their deposit base and theoretically their ability to lend more money, but they took off quite quickly. So it was quite flighty stuff. And most and of that happened, money that went from the state into the bank through that QE process ended up basically in speculation in the stock market. What, uh, certainly a lot of it did. It, it put up asset credit. prices. Yeah. yeah, and also what it did was, uh, sorry, 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 it also helped fuel the increase in commodity prices too, which uh, increased inflation and made things more difficult for people who were suffering already. So there are many issues with QE. I just read something uh, this morning in the Bank of England report. Between 2009 Q1 and 2014, uh, I think 25%, I think the bank's lending to the non-commercial sector, all right, dropped from 25 points, sorry, um, it dropped to 25.69% of lending rather than 38.18%. So the amount of lending they actually did fell. Uh, and a more recent study by the Bank of England, August 2020, showed that banks' lending didn't really increase as a result of QE. What it did was maintain asset prices, yeah. and it enabled the banks to improve their liquidity by a little bit of regulatory. I have, a, I have a graph that shows where the kind of new money went and what ended up, you know, where this kind of massive fiscal stimulus, which is kind of what it was, and most of that money simply went into, into you know, into more debts, as you said, more assets, raising asset prices, raising commodity prices, and about ten percent of it trickled down into the real economy. So all of these hundreds of billions of new money, and that was the thing that struck me, John. I come to you now. So, I remember thinking at the time, well, where's the government getting all this money to buy all of its own debt back? Uh, does it have uh, that stash of money in the bank? So where's it getting the 500 billion to create 500 billion? Uh, and someone says, well, well they're just printing. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's a ledger entry issue. I mean, again, this all sounds very counterintuitive. Literally, the government can never run out of its own sovereign fiat money. And, you know, years ago, it was printing presses and so on. Now we don't need that. We have uh, electronics. So it literally is a, is, a, is a ledger entry on an electronic, an electronic spreadsheet. And that's what I think repels most of it, makes it sound very counterintuitive and so on. But I'm reminded here, and both of you probably know, maybe some of the listeners, and a wonderful quote from one of the Rothschilds, where he famously said, I don't care what sort of uh, a government is in power in a, in a country. Just give me control of its money. And it's that power of the money supply, which has been ceded by the state uh, over the last number of, of decades since the kind of high social democratic Keynesian era, and particularly with the break with uh, the gold standard under Nixon and so on. And what, at, at the very least, what modern monetary theory, it brings back into purview, it's the state that is the ultimate issuer of currency. 
even in the eurozone it is a you know it's a much more complex issue it's got more states involved but it's the same principle and for me as an educator and again you know somebody schooled like most of us in economics and this basic understanding that somehow money uh, is there as a means of, of exchange that is completely bullshit there is no anthropological no historical evidence that you know to solve the you know the, the bartering problem that's how money comes about it isn't that at all historically money comes about because of a public authority wanting to tax in its own currency yeah. that's the main issue we often beginning with empires and, and so on so i think it's, it's a Sorry, go on, finish your point, sorry. No, no, I was just going to say it, it, that what modern monetary theory is important is about re-understanding our history because I think our notion of debt, of how, of how money operates and so on, and the power of this debt fetish partly is in the base that most of us who studied economics in secondary school, that's the, 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 the fairy story, the fairy tale story we're told about the invention of, of money, and it's completely wrong. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is... One, one of the reasons why all of this stuff is so important to include in, and we include in all of our political education in fact we start off with money systems and money and finance because that's what people have to understand um, is that whenever we're doing work with trade union members in particular or community activists they, they'll say there's no money and i just go quantitative easing and they'll say there's no money and i'll say quantitative easing no there's no money quantitative fucking easing mate where did they get the money where did they get the 500 billion to put into these finance houses and banks and then the I said, well, they, they invented it. They hit a reducer, they hit a, a stroke on a computer key and they credited someone's uh, Or to put it even more simply, what, you know, what, why is there always money for war and not the NHS? I well, mean, it's, it's a issue, similar version to about, that. You know? point about MMT and what it does and also understanding QE as, as my entrance into the whole world is it, it, it shows you that there is always money when they want it. There's never money when we fucking want it. Because they, they, they spend it on important things like asset prices. We'll only spend it on our kids. Um, and that's why QE is important, isn't it, Stuart, for people to get their heads around? Because it's a good entrance, I think, to understanding all of the intricacies and the technical stuff around money creation and money supply, and as you said, your money control. Who controls I don't think. So I, I don't think it's actually that uh, difficult. They try and uh, mystify it for reasons that we all understand. Uh, and there was certainly money available for the banks, and there was money available from the magic money tree for the DUP a couple of years ago when they hooked in with the government. Yeah. Uh, I think um, a last point I want to oh, make. That when Theresa May pulled that billion quid <laughs> out of her ass. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mental image I like to forget. Very much for that Have a Friday night. Pick, oh, give me the drinks now. I think I'll take the free pint now. Thank you. Actually, maybe I won't. But an important point about QE as well is Japanese experiment with it was probably more successful uh, than it was in the States and in Europe, partly because it was bigger. I mean, the Japanese QE was huge, but also it was more focused. They tended to buy more corporate bonds and more equity, uh, which helped basically you know, have to look at the problems we've had over the last, for Japan over the last 30 years. Uh, as a kind of balance sheet depression. So if you help companies sort out that sort of issue, then you can get them working again and getting more active. Uh, and people say, but Japan's not been that great over the last 10 to 15 years. You have to remember that Japan is going through pretty serious depopulation just now. There's a real demographic crisis there. So when you look at uh, Japan's growth per capita, it's actually not that bad. And they brought an end to the continual deflation that was there for decades. So QE in Japan probably has been more successful because it was more focused. But it, I mean, as well as that, we'll finish on this point here, but QE was kind of almost unheard of before 2011-12, but now it's become so mainstream, no one talks about it. I mean, the United States Treasury are basically engaged in what they called QE forever. They're constantly going to be engaged in this process of 
providing stimulus for a stock market and a capital system that's in crisis and is in constant crisis, not even if it's in kind of a, a boom and bust situation. It's a constant crisis with the inability to restore profits being backed up by public state money. Um, well, that's what happens when you've got an economy running the interest of the rich, which is what we discussed a little bit in the last episode. And one of the reasons why you have to tax the bastards a little bit more, otherwise everything gets run to suit their financial interests. Absolutely. I mean, even, well, move on to the European Union, because even the European Union, pre-COVID, end of 2019, stepped up its quantitative easing program to prop up the failed economy that, or the failed economies of the European Union. Sorry, John, you want to come in there? No, it just it, it's a wonder. Uh, um, I don't know how true this is, but somebody in the MMT community reckoned that Theresa May used the term "magic monetary tree" as a, a, either a direct or indirect reference to try and discredit MMT thinking. Now, I don't know how true that is, but I think it will be more uh, maybe more symbolic. But I do think the the issue you mentioned about the EU, and of course, as you know. Partly through engagement with feckers like you, I've now completely almost fallen out of love with my former um, European Union. And I, I, Stuart wouldn't know this, but I was actually prominent here in the Green Party in Northern Ireland who uh, voted uh, against leaving the EU back in 2016. I've now um, completely changed my view. I mean, this is a, a neoliberal institution right to its very core. You know, the fact that, um, you know, bailing out the banks as opposed to the people. I mean, that's what's different, you know, in the pandemic we're in now in comparison to what happened, at least in the last, the last financial crisis. The state has been forced to come in, grudgingly probably, to come in and bail out uh, people unlike the last time. But uh, the European Union, in a way, um, it shows how it, it, it is completely unable to engage. You know, even the Green New Deal that it uh, has, you know, established goes nowhere near what, what's needed. This anti-deficit fetish that it has, you know, partly ordo liberalism liberalism in, in, in Germany seems to rule the day. I, I, you know, I just think that the European Union itself, if you're an MMT, and I know Bill Mitchell, the Australian, you know, originator, he's very good on this if anyone's interested in terms of, if you believe in MMT, and again, MMT is not an ideology, it's simply a, you know, a handbook or a manual about understand the economy, it's very hard to see if you're a progressive on the left to believe that the EU is anything other than a neoliberal constitutional monster. Well, it has within its, um, I think I was trying to look it up there, in, in Article 123 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, the TFEU, which is a central treaty of the EU and how it functions, it, 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 it bans direct monetary finance. It says that the European Central Bank cannot just print money, make money, credit money, to the various national currencies, which is what the Bank of England is currently doing. It's what the Fed in America is currently doing. They're literally pumping trillions to keep the economy alive. The European Union expressly makes it illegal for the ECB to do that. Then that proves the point you just made. Yeah. It's sticking to its fiscal. Now, it has temporarily suspended those fiscal yeah, yeah. at the moment, but it can't wait to reinstitute them again, can it, Stuart? No, very keen to go ahead and do so. And I say this to friends of mine who are quite keen on Scottish independence. You have no independence if you... Uh, join the EU and you have the euro. There'll be restrictions on the size of your deficit uh, and you will have to go and almost certainly they'll be told they have to use the euro, which is basically the gold standard, just a, a gold standard by a different name. And uh, you'll be shafted the way the other countries have. I mean, you're basically, uh, when you're in the euro, you're basically borrowing in another in a, in a foreign currency. In a sense, yeah, you, you, don't don't, you don't control you're, it, you have no say yeah. From an MMT perspective, you're a currency taker, not a currency issuer. It's a ceding of the sovereignty of nation states. That's exactly the point Stuart is, is making. Sorry, Stuart, you jumped in there, mate. 
Ah, no problem at all. It's a, it's, a, it's a perfect point. You're a currency user. Uh, this is what happened to the Greeks. The Greeks got shafted because they could no longer print the drachma. They would have had problems anyway, but they were accentuated by the fact that uh, they couldn't print the drachma. People demanded extreme interest rates on Greek debt. Uh, and yeah, they did genuinely run out of money. This happened also uh, with the Mexicans with the peso crisis because they had a lot of debt, which was basically dollar denominated. Uh, and you shaft yourself that way. So if you join the euro, you do not have any independence and you will be shafted by the Germans who are still basically a mercantilist economy dedicated towards exporting their way out of any problems they have and shafting everybody. I remember, God, 2007, maybe 2006 before the crisis, the Belgians and the French were complaining about German behavior because they made a conscious decision to keep their inflation below that of their main European uh, allies stroke competitors and was screwing everybody and causing them balance of payments problems. And this wasn't the South, this was the Belgians, this was the French. So, uh, yeah, you, I mean, I don't want, like to use the emotive phrase, the German economic empire, but I just did, and I'll use it again. It's a German economic empire. Having spoken to an awful lot of people in the German, on the German left, the, the dedication they have to the European project is kind of frightening. It's this idea of, you know, it's almost like a benign empire. Don't worry, we'll look after you. Um, it's kind of, um, and this pooling of sovereignty idea that they have, that if everyone gives us a sovereignty, we'll look after it for you, don't panic, we'll give you social Europe. And that was always the payoff, wasn't it? I suppose that social Europe would be the payoff, this pooling of sovereignty, but social Europe's been fucking put in a blender. It's gone. But also, just, just on that point, I mean, again, it's probably for a separate discussion, just given that it's 30 years now since the reunification of Germany, what's been forgotten in the analysis is that this was a takeover in terms of what happened to East Germany was almost like what would happen to Scotland, maybe if it joined the European Union in terms of the fiscal rules, the, the indebtedness, uh, you know, that it's not going to be a land of milk and honey as it wasn't for many in, in East Germany. Uh, but that's anyway, sorry, a separate issue. It's one of the reasons I suppose we're talking about there is why the, this conversation is different when you have it over the border here in the Republic of Ireland because they've handed over that monetary sovereignty that they don't have over their own currency. So they do have to act as if they're part of a gold standard, as you said. And um, that's really important, isn't it, Stuart? Because it's that idea that the rich always say there's only so much money about. And the European Union can actually use that argument successfully because they base their entire economy on that premise that actually we don't print money. We don't engage in direct monetary finance. We spend what is taxable, what, what your nation states comes in. So if you don't have charge of your own currency, you do go back to that old gold standard, pre-1971 form of finance, don't you? When, when money was commodified, i.e. the price of the pound or the dollar was linked to the price of gold. And, and that, although that makes sense to people, it also means money is a limited resource. And, that's a, and the EU is kind of using, yeah. using it as a parallel yeah. argument, saying we don't have that much. So austerity actually inside the Eurozone is a fact. There's no other way out. It's the apart, only yeah, way apart from leaving the euro. Yeah. Uh, austerity is the only adjustment mechanism you effectively have. Uh, and that's pretty serious. And one of the reasons why the right is resurgent across Europe. This has uh, political implications as well as economic. Absolutely. But, Look, we're going to go but, to the last bit. Come on, John, come in there, mate. No, I was just going to say that, you know, again, going back to MMT, <clears throat> the, the, you know, that, and we talked about this in our last podcast, that, you know, the adjustment mechanism is unemployment. That was the price, you know, that people were sacrificed to keep inflation down. Or in other words, economic adjustment is done through this horrible term that you learn if you've ever done economics, the non-accelerating rate of unemployment or NERU, which uh -huh. they can never fucking predict. There's never any, you know, hard. It's whatever is judged politically, 
to be the price in terms of working people going unemployed to keep particularly inflation down or to keep the economy in, in the services, Stuart said, in, in, in terms of a particular class. That's what unemployment is. It's a, it's a political choice. It's not some inevitable political determinant coming from how the economy uh, operates in terms of, you know, fully functioning economy. Yeah, so it, it shows us that um, in, in the EU, it's it's permanent austerity. As you said, Stuart, there's no other choice for them. It allows them to put the entire Eurozone and other parts of the European Union into a kind of neoliberal straitjacket. I mean, the very fact that fiscal rules mean you can't borrow to invest in the Green New Deal, but you can go to the private sector and ask them to invest in your Green New Deal and they'll fucking charge you for the next 50 years for it. It's just the idea there's no other choice here. And on that point, I started talking about it. I wanted to, does, does this analysis, this lens through which we look at government finances, does it at least help us, you think, on the left, talk about um, the role of the state, a state that has control of its own currency, given that as a start, um, and, and the role of the state in planning for a transition to a more green and sustainable future and job guarantees and green new deals? I mean, do we have to be in charge of our own currency as nation states, which is really, for me, the only demos that means anything at the moment, the only place that I can organise in. I can't organise internationally across the globe, but I can win power on my street in my workplace, possibly in the nation state, Northern Ireland's place of parts, we'll leave that to one side for a moment. But if you live in a nation, you can win through the demos. You can win some sort of political power there, and you might be able to therefore instigate some of the stuff that we need to see happening, like fucking tomorrow, in terms of the transition to a new kind of economy. So well, how does MMT help us there, John, or does it help you even kind of imagine a different kind of future? Well, I think um, myself and Stuart might want to talk about this. Uh, one aspect of certain understandings of MMT is the job guarantee. Again, um, more technically, it's a, it's a buffer, it's a stabiliser that, you know, um, we, there's no reason why the state can't act as the employer of the last resort. You know, and some of the more right-wing versions of MNT, they're seen as transitional jobs, sort of people can go into the private sector and so on. Mostly you find a kind of an American version of MMT, which isn't, in my view, particularly progressive. I, I think definitely I, I encourage people to read Bill Mitchell on the Australian uh, version. And I do think that idea of a job guarantee is an interesting proposition. I mean, again, nobody should be under any illusion MNT is going to solve all our problems. Nobody in even MNT on the left um, would accept that. You need other policies, you know, worker democracy, you know, real control over the productive assets of a society. But what I do like about the job guarantee idea in certain versions of it is that we propose that the state would pay the wages of people, but the jobs themselves would be determined locally. Uh, at community level in terms of, you know, there's always work to be done in our communities. And I think there's something quite progressive uh, about that. So this isn't about a transitional job to go into the private sector. It's actually trying to say, you know, we're going to have to clean up the earth. We're going to have to, you know, recuperate our degraded landscapes, clean up our rivers, all the, the crap that's accumulated in a particular industrial capitalist form of agriculture, just speaking from where you, you live, Stefan. And that to me has something uh, definitely to be, uh, to be looked at. But I, I think there are issues, and Stuart might raise in terms of, you know, um, there, are, there may be some problems with this job guarantee as it's formulated in certain aspects of MMT. So, Stuart, over to you. Uh, yeah, uh, and uh, to get back to your question as well, Stefan, I think it does give us a very good means of lying, uh, sorry, of giving the lie to the bullshit that there is no money, right? We can invest, okay? We can find it, and we can find it without increasing the deficit in a such a way which is damaging to the rest of the economy uh, and without causing inflation and without causing some kind of societal breakdown. The money is there. 
right? The, the deficit in itself is not an issue. It's the balance in the rest of the economy, which is important. With the job guarantee scheme, um, yeah, I pretty much agree with John there about uh, it can be something good if it's a more permanent aspect. The problem I have is Kelton talks about getting people through the job guarantee scheme to go ahead and do worthwhile jobs. If the job is worthwhile in a rational society, why isn't it being done anyway? And if it's a worthwhile job, then it should be done by someone who knows how to do it. And so they'll need to be trained in there. If you just see it as a place to dump people before the private sector comes and takes them, all right, then I can see it being a place where you, people are going to think they have to get, if you're in the job guarantee scheme uh, and you're not particularly active because the guys can't find an awful lot for you to do, you're getting paid a semi-decent living wage, a private employer comes in, oh, you want to go, you want to take that job? No, I don't yeah. want to take that job. It's a bit like, you, I mean, I, I, mean, I read the book and it's like the job guarantee is just slightly above the fucking dole. It's basically a shit job that you're, and you're in transitioning from the dole to the shit, shit job guarantee, then you'll get a proper job in the private sector and that's entirely the wrong focus. Exactly. Mitchell says this because you're right, John. Mitchell is uh, certainly to the left of the MMT spectrum, but he does start, say somewhere in the book, I've lost my reference, but he says something like, it's not going to make that much of a difference because the, the, you know, the government would pay them unemployment benefit, other benefits anyway. You aren't going to pay a hell of a lot of difference here. He also says something interesting to it, but it won't put an additional pressure on wage increases because for the better paid workers, uh, there might be the prospect if they lose their job of a job guarantee system, a job guarantee scheme, which is going to pay them nowhere near as much as their current employment does. So it won't put upward pressure on the wage bill. Yes. All right. I mean, it, and, and and it, it, it scares the shit out of workers for looking for wage increases because they know they're going to lose their fucking job and end up in a shitty job guarantee uh, scheme. John? No, just going to say, I mean, it shares some of the problems with the basic income suggestion, uh, which I think, Stefan, we should definitely do a, a podcast about and, and that actually the job guarantee may be inferior to even that crap kind of liberal tech, um, you know, Elon Musk. Um, you know, it's amazing how all these Californian tech entrepreneurs are all mad for the basic income guarantee. At least the basic income guarantee has the promise of increasing the bargaining power of workers in terms of depending on the, the level at which it's set, which, of course, the job guarantee wouldn't, as you say. So it could even be that the job guarantee, despite, you know, some positive aspects I spoke about earlier, I absolutely agree with, uh, with, with, with what yourself and Stuart said in terms of at the very least, you know, it should be seen as why do we need a job guarantee when actually in a rationally organized economy where, where you know, needs are met, where things need to be done? Why aren't they being done? Absolutely. I mean, you can see an MMT job guarantee and the, the idea that the state will pay for a land on, as you said, John, to repair our fucking environment and yeah. make those jobs good, well-trained jobs. We need foresters, we need people skilled at repairing rivers and, and, and tackling pollution. It should and be seen as something positive to be part of, not as some secondary shit job. Absolutely. But also that issue, you know, obviously as somebody who's particularly interested in this green sustainability issue, it really um, brings home the importance of a materialist resource asset-based view of our economy. Forget about the finance, because from a financial point of view, investing in recuperating our ecosystems ain't going to bring back a return. And that's the very reason why they're fucking degraded, why we're, you know, we're engaging in ecocidal capitalist accumulation and so on. So for me, again, I go back to that for me, the, the most important thing with MNT is pulling back the veil. A bit like the, the, the Wizard of Oz and, you know, <laughs> pulling back and seeing that actually the finance is ideological, it's, it's political, 
austerity is a, is a choice and so on, that it isn't the finance. You know, it, it, the money is always there. What, there is a magic money tree, Mrs. May. It's that the government was refusing to use it for the people. And of course, that's for me, just to go back to the QE discussion, that was what was exciting about Labour and John MacDonald, where they did briefly toy. I think it was under the influence of people like Richard Murphy, I think that Stuart mentioned earlier, who runs a great organisation called the Tax Justice Network, if anyone's interested. But that idea of QE for the people and not the banks. I mean, there's something quite progressive about that. But of course, we, we all know where that story ended up. Yeah, they, they did toy with that for a while. And it was a real disappointment for those of us on the outside looking in at that. Corbyn kind of accident was really what that five-year period was that they moved away from it. From what I remember speaking at Durham about that, I had it up on the screen, quantitative people. This is what we could do with that money. This money could be invested in our communities, jobs, green jobs. I won't say who it was, but someone came up to me afterwards, Labour Party. Somebody got elected as Labour Party MP after this. We won't be doing it. And I said, why not? Because we couldn't possibly sell it. And that's what electoral politics reduces you to: is what you can sell, you know, into the hegemony, into those because those other popular narratives are so deeply embedded you don't think you can defeat them or deconstruct them. And it brings me back to my first point of every podcast the need for radical political education john stewart do you want to come in on that mate i think you have to see mmt as being a little bit similar to what keynes did in the 1930s and 1940s keynes basically showed that neoclassical economics was bullshit and we should do something quite different but he did it with the intention of saving capitalism uh, and the same with MMT. The MMT people, even the left MMT people, are intent on saving capitalism with all its issues. Uh, and to a certain extent, from an environmental point of view, you talk about the job guarantee program, that's just all about maintaining output, maintaining spending, uh, and nothing to do with, uh, I guess, looking at the priorities of our economy. They say nothing about that, and they're kind of neutral about the whole thing. It's all about saving a system, which I think the three of us agree needs to be radically transformed rather than made to work a little bit nicer for a few more people. Yeah, here, here. I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a capitalist way out of this particular crisis, lads. Uh, that's the reality <laughs> we need. We do need radical transformative change. Of course, how we get there is a big issue. Um, I'm going to leave you with my final point. I'm going to come to each of you to give you your final points on the day. Just say something, say something inspirational and profound. Obviously, I'll, I'll give you that one to come up with something. <laughs> one of the things I like about MMT and the, the analysis it gives us when I'm doing political education work with trade union punters and people in the community is that if you can move away from the narrative, we need to tax the rich to fund public spending. Well, then you can convince them same people. It might be just a better idea to confiscate all of their assets, not just some of them. How are you, John? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, people should take from this, you know, educate themselves that almost everything they've learned about economics in school, what they hear on the media, is in large part uh, are the genuine uh, mistaken understanding. We have to always allow for that. But mostly it's an ideological manipulation. It, it's the propagation of a common sense view of this debt, you know, uh, you know, fear of debt, and also this idea that somehow money is the constraining factor. It isn't. There is enough resources and, and assets and human ingenuity in the world to meet all our needs. It's that old idea that we should be propagating a philosophy of abundance to challenge this narrative of austerity that people are, are, are laboring under. Um, and certainly I think MMT can be mobilized in that direction, but you know, Stuart is quite correct in that most of the MMT analyses I've looked at are, are rather milk and waterish at most maybe Keynesian as opposed to truly radical. It's about, you know, more, 
you know, reform of the system, whereas actually what we need is a complete revolution and transformation. And that's a, you know, it's a whole other issue about, you know, the ownership and control of the productive assets of society. This is a, opens up that conversation to illuminate uh, that uh, that entry level discussion. But I do think it is about, you know, giving people the, uh, you know, the knowledge and the understanding that most of what they hear around explaining austerity is complete and utter bullshit. Yeah, Stuart, my last word for you, Governor. When I look at explaining MNT to people, which I've tried uh, several times over the last few months, the bit which works, the bit which sticks is when you go through history and you show how debt, how huge debt was, Napoleonic Wars. When you show what actually happened rather than go through some of the theory, then people begin to get it. Uh, and this uh, is one thing I'm kind of grateful to MNT for because it proves one of my basic obsessions is we need to go ahead and stop teaching economics, all right, for 30 years, because economic theory is mostly bullshit. We need to stop teaching it, and we need to spend a good 30 years looking at what actually happened and explaining that, and then construct a theory on what happened, rather than the desire of a bunch of people back in the 18th and 19th centuries to show that basically free market capitalism was the only way to run a rational society once you kick out your aristocrats. So MMT, focus on the history, and that gives you a very good lens and prism to see through the bullshit. Brilliant, mate. Thanks very much. I'm going to go back to watching the TV. I'll be watching the business reports tonight about how uh, governments need to increase borrowing, and I'll be screaming at the TV. No, they fucking don't. They can just print it. <laughs> so when they borrow money, they're just giving money to their mates in the. It's a, I mean, it's a direct transfer of wealth, isn't it? Just to their mates in the stock market. Um, if anyone's interested in learning more about MMT, and you really should try and get your head around it. it takes a bit of time. As John said, a bit counterintuitive. We will leave a list of books and articles and websites on the Anchor site, so feel free to engage there. And we'll come back with these two punters again. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed those last couple of podcasts. I think, John, you're right. We'll, we'll have a go at UBI, and UBS, and job guarantees, and maybe we'll also look a little bit about green finance and green investment and how we actually mobilise to change our society. So, lads, can't thank you enough. Thanks very much. If I see you in London anytime, Stuart, I will buy you a pint and you will drink it. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, mate. I'll look forward to it. I'll be spending the evening like you shouting at the television and trying not to think about trees in May because it's right. my head. All right, lads. Up, up, the, up the workers and enjoy the hard-won fruits of the labour movement that we know is the weekend. No more. <laughs> that, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Up the workers and slang foil. foil.